That brings us to this moment, and this being the fourth Sunday, not only do we have singing at the nine o'clock period, but in this period we also devote a lesson related to our theme for the year. And that is hand in hand with the healer, spending moments with the healer, spending moments with the great physician. And the thing that we chose to talk about this particular month in our relationship with the healer are things related to the family. Things related to marriage, things related to parenting. This morning I'm not going to talk so much about parenting as I am marriage and talk about what I think are three foundations for marriage. Now as I begin that, I'm well aware also that this audience is filled with a number of individuals who are not married, who live single lives. And so immediately when I begin to talk about foundations for marriage, you may be thinking, oh great, I'm left out of this. Because I'm not married, this isn't for me. Well, the things we're going to talk about, if you as a person will divorce that from the marriage relationship and just apply the things we're talking about to you, then I think you'll find the three things we talk about applicable to you as a Christian and to you as a person who may one day anticipate being in a marriage relationship. So if you're single, please don't tune me out. If you're single, please take these things and say, okay, I can apply this this way to my life. And that way, it'll help us each one. Because really, the things we're going to talk about are things that are part of what being a Christian is about. And we're going to talk about people who are Christians involved in a marriage relationship. And so think about it from that standpoint, as opposed to, oh, this isn't about me. Because there are things that will be helpful for you as well. Foundations of marriage have been well spoken of by our Lord. When challenged by the Pharisees, they're testing Him. In Matthew chapter 19, they ask Him the question. And the question is, uh, by whose? Uh, he had this woman, is it right to lawful divorce her for any reason? And Jesus takes them back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, which relates to Psalm 127, verse 1. If the Lord build the house... It will stand. And the Lord tells us how to build that house. And the Lord, Jesus doesn't argue with them about their question. He simply takes them back to the beginning when God made them male and female. And brought them together. And brought them together as husband and wife. There's a few more things that go into that. But in the end, Jesus says, here's the thing. I tell you, whosoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. And he who marries her has committed adultery. Jesus, in laying the foundations of marriage, brought woman to man and gave her to him. And man responded, this is flesh of my flesh. The literal part of that, when Adam speaks, is this is it. This is the answer. She's the answer. And there was a reason that he needed an answer. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But when Adam saw what God had brought to him, his first response was, she's the answer. She's the answer. And God made them husband and wife. He gave that one exception. In the foundations of marriage, understand, this is not something you face willy-nilly. There's something serious about this. There's something serious about the covenant, the promise that we make to one another, and that we make to God. And so he laid that one exception with regard to sexual immorality. And 
of course, that's the bane of many marriages. We see marriages today. Marriages today that are, that are shattered. Marriages that are broken. Marriages that, that are in, in, in states of disaster. Maybe not necessarily because of what the Lord said. Simply because of dysfunctional relationships. But instead of thinking of grounds for divorce, per Matthew 19, maybe we should think of grounds for staying married per the beginning. And so when you think about that, how, how would we describe our marriages? Would we describe them as magnificent, rich, and fulfilling? Would we describe them as miserable, two people simply existing under the same roof? I'm reminded of the story that I read about Winston Churchill. A woman who despised Churchill said, Mr. Churchill, if you're my husband, I'd put poison in your tea. He said, ma'am, you, if you're my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> well, sometimes marriages are like that. You have this dysfunction in which there is a tolerance, and that would be kind way to put it. I'm going to talk this morning about three foundations. I'm going to give you the three, and then we're going to work through each one of them. The first foundation that we're going to talk about has to do with character. The second has to do with companionship. And the third has to do with Christ. And you might be thinking, well, why do you put Christ first? Because in every relay, there's an anchor leg. And Christ is going to be the anchor leg at the end of the lesson. So when you think about this, think about when you think about foundations of marriage, I want you to think about it from the standpoint of character. You know, if you go to whatever search you want to, to search for a book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever, you want to go to Barnes & Noble, half-price books forever, and you go to, to look for books on character, books on relationships, books on marriage. Man, there's books after books after books after books that are available. Each telling how to, to build and develop character. Well, if we could find a book that was the book of all books that spoke about how to address the question of character, how to address the question of integrity, how to address behavior that would be commensurate with the kind of character that would be one of integrity, and we could find a book that addressed all that, not several books that address each one, but one that addresses all of those things. Then would that be a book that we'd really want to pay attention to? Well, we have that book. It's called the Word of God. It's called the Bible. The Bible addresses the challenging question of character. It addresses behavior. It addresses integrity. It addresses how we are to apply ourselves with regard to our character. And so when we think about the Bible from that standpoint, look at, me at a few passages. When we think about this standpoint of character, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to read with me beginning in verse 22. Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 22. He's just finished talking about the works of the flesh. But now he says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. How can we have the Spirit in our lives and how can we have the kind of character that will help our lives fulfill God's original design. Verses 22 and 23 are called the fruit of the Spirit. Please pay attention to how that is worded. It's not called the fruits of the Spirit. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit has these attributes. Every one of these attributes is a character attribute. And if you have these kind of attributes, if we have these kind of attributes in our lives, then we have the Spirit in our lives and we're walking by the Spirit and our marriages will therefore then be Spirit-filled because the fruit of the Spirit is a part of our relationship. The fruit of the Spirit defines in character who we are. And so in our relationship. We find love, we find joy, we find peace, we find long-suffering, we find kindness, we find faithfulness, we find gentleness, we find self-control, and then we find the Spirit. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And again, look at these virtues, these attributes, and how they're described. Beginning in verse 5. But also, this for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to be fruitful in the Lord, what, what are the things that should describe our character? Well, our character should be described as one of faith and one of virtue. That idea of virtue would be more courage. It would be the idea of manliness. It would be the idea to, to finish what you start. The idea of then knowledge, the acquisition of information, the application of it to self-control. You think about self-control, you think about perseverance, the ability just to continue on without giving in or giving up. And then you have the idea of godliness. Godliness not God-likeness. God-likeness is significant, but godliness is not God-likeness. God-likeness is like God. Godliness is an attitude of reverence, an attitude of humbleness, an attitude of piety, a sense of awe. That's the idea of godliness. And then you have brotherly kindness, and you have love. Those are the things that should be fruitful in our lives. If those things are part of our relationship, we have the kind of character the Holy Spirit wants us to have. Then turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As Paul addresses the conflict in the church at Corinth over spiritual gifts, he now comes and he, he says, let me paint for you a word picture of the character of God and tell you what I've been talking about. And so beginning in verse 4, he describes it this way. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave itself rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked, thinks no evil. 
does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Look at this. The character of God is one that suffers long. The sense of long, long suffering is hold out long in the face of retaliation for others. It's long on breath. The imagery is in, in the word is long-nosed. And the idea of long-nosed is that deep, that deep breath that before you respond, as opposed to shortness of breath. Now, how, how can we be long-suffering? They're couplets by being kind. Kind is a utilitarian word. It's a word that's hard to put word definition to, but you know it when you see it. So he says, if, if you, the way to be kind is to be long-suffering. And if you're long-suffering, it's going to be as a result of being kind. And then he said, don't act like you know it all. Don't be conceited. Don't be arrogant. And don't be puffed up like an old horny toad and just blow yourself out of proportion. Don't be puffed up with yourself. And then don't go about like a rooster parading yourself like you know it all. He said, don't, don't puff yourself up and don't go telling everybody all about how great you are. Have you ever, have you ever met the person who you spent five minutes with them and you already know everybody, everything about them because they told you? Well, he's saying don't be that kind of person. Then he says, furthermore, does not behave rudely. If we're going to be like God, we're not going to be rude to people. We're not going to behave rudely. We're not going to speak rudely. And then he also says, regarding that, is not selfish. The bane of all relationships, the bright on every relationship, the bright on character is selfishness. It's not about me. It's about her. It's about the relationship. And then he says, the idea is, not, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Two considerations in that. One is, you don't collect faults like some people collect stamps to be used at an opportune time. And so you're going along there and you have this explosion by the husband or the wife. And what in the world happened? You get this, all of a sudden the pop-off valve went off and the whole thing just explodes right in your face. What in the world happened? What did I say? What did I do? Well, most of the time, it's not about that moment. It's about three months earlier. When what you said, or what you did, or what you didn't say, or what you didn't do, that put the burr under the saddle. And you've been saddling up and riding every day with that burr under the saddle, and finally that burr just rubbed the, rubbed the back of the horse raw, and now then the horse has had it, and he's going to pitch you off, and I'm done with you. Because you have worked me wrong. Most of the time, it's not the thing. It's something beyond before the thing that happens. And so what's happened is, just been storing that up. Just been collecting that like people collect stamps until the opportune time that I am going to blow you away. He says, no, love doesn't do that. The second consideration of that is, is love does not surmise evil. Love does not surmise evil where there's no reason to surmise evil. Well, if love is not going to surmise evil, then it's not going to store up faults. Here's God. God doesn't explode without self-control, and God doesn't just store up faults, and God doesn't surmise where there's no evil. Have you ever had in your relationship, in a relationship, where someone said something, you think, I know why they did that. I know, I know why they said that. I, I know what she meant. 
I know exactly what she meant. I, I, I know what happened. I know. I know. Several years ago, several years ago, because Cason's 22, and he was about eight or nine at this point in the Little League uh, World Series playoff down at uh, Center, Texas. Jody and I were going to ride down there about three hours out to watch him play. And something had happened. And when we rode down there, there were three hours of silence. I thought, I'm not talking first. If she wants this solved, she can say something. She can bring it up. I'm not doing it. She's the one at fault. She did this. She did it. And she's going to be the one that's going to say it. Well, we get in the truck. And we come back. And we're just past Canton. And I'm honest, I don't remember who broke the ice first. But the ice was broken. And when the ice was broken, and I told her what was bothering me, and she told me what was bothering her, trust me, it wasn't worth five hours of silence. And so, when you think about, okay, I just stored this up, and now I'm going to use it on you. No, love does not behave rude. Love doesn't seek its own. And then I love what he says next here, when he says, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. I'm not happy when she does something and she is therefore accused of being wrong. When she achieves teacher of the year, I rejoice that she's been teacher of the year. When she hurts, I hurts. When she succeeds, and she has a class full of first graders because all the parents of those first graders in the class wanted her in her class, wanted their children in her class. I'm happy for her. It's not okay because I've been storing up these faults and now, good for you. Somebody got you. No. Love doesn't, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices what is right. And then in case we left something out, he says, he says this, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In case there's something in the, in the, in the, in the mixture of this that I missed, love falls under this. It just holds on and holds on, doesn't get out, <laughs> and holds up, holds up, and it believes all things, and it, it just hopes all things. Sometimes it's hope against hope. And then you have this exclamation. Love never fails. Character never fails. Ricky didn't say that. The Holy Spirit said that. And so if we're going to argue about having the kind of character of Galatians 5, 2 Peter 1, and 1 Corinthians 13. And whether that will help us in our relationships or not, understand, we're arguing with the Holy Spirit. You're not arguing with me. And if we have that kind of character in our relationship, it's not that the relationship will not be problem-free. But because we have the kind of character the Holy Spirit teaches us to have, it will never fail. That kind of love never fails. I found this quote 
that's several years old by a fellow named J. Allen Patterson, a Reader's Digest. And it said, most people get married, be, most people get married, believe the myth that marriage is a beautiful box full of all beautiful things they have longed for. Companionship, sexual fulfillment, intimacy, friendship. The truth is a marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put something in before you can take something out. There's no love in marriage. Love is in people and people put into marriage. No romance in marriage. People have to infuse it into their romance. A couple must learn the art and form, the habit of giving, loving, serving, praising, and keeping that box full. If you take more out than you put in the box, it will be empty. Now you think about the problems that occur in a marriage relationship. Are they not all 100% related to a deficiency in character? If you think about adultery, you think about lying, you think about lack of love, a lack of respect, contempt for in-laws, drinking, Every one of those relates to character. Self-conceit, hate, anger, ill will, malice. Every one of those relate to character. And so when we think about the kind of character we ought to have, think about the kind of character that God wants us to have. Now I said in the beginning, if you're single, there's something for you. Here's the kind of character you as a single person need to be developing in your life so you can be God-like. The first response to marriage problems should not be the divorce court. And sadly, even among Christians, it is characteristic that the first answer is always the divorce court. We should look for more reasons for marriage to succeed and thrive than to find ways to the divorce court. As I said in the beginning, let's try to find grounds for marriage thriving and succeeding as opposed to grounds for divorce. The second thing I think is important as a foundation of marriage has to do with companionship. In fact, when you come to Genesis, and I said we talked about this, so I'm pulling that peg up. When you come to that statement in Genesis, and, and he says, this is it. She's the answer is the sense of that. The answer to what? The answer to man's problem. What was man's problem? He's alone. And God said it's not good that he should be alone. And so what God said is, I'm going to make a helper for him. And then God has the animals come before Adam, and he names all the animals that come before Adam. And there's not one there found suitable, suitable comparable, comparable to, corresponding to Adam and the need that Adam has. And so God said that I'm going to create an answer for him. I'm going to cause a deep sleep. I'm going to take one of his ribs, and I'm going to fashion a woman for him and give her to him. And when 
Adam awoke, he responded, she's the answer. Whoa, man. And I'm told that is exactly the sense in the Hebrew. Now, why would he have that kind of amazement? Well, if you've been looking at giraffes, aardvarks, and camels, and you compare that to the beauty of a woman, wouldn't you say, whoa, man, too? Now, God has a companion for him. That word companionship is an interesting word. It's a compound word. It means messmate. Well, that doesn't sound too complimentary, does it? Messmate. One with whom you share bread. Okay, take that on out. One with whom you share life. And so companionship is I found somebody I want to share life with. I want to talk to. Someone who can help me. And so if the first thing we would think about when we are engaging ourselves in marriage is, I have found someone with whom I can share life, someone that is corresponding to my need, someone that is the answer to my problem. And when you have the answer and the problem put together, you have a solution. And God's solution for man's loneliness was companionship. God gave him a companion to share life with. And so when you look at your mate and you begin to think those thoughts that stir in you because he or she has aggravated you to no end, have done something that just grinds you to pieces, think about it this way. God gave you that person to be a companion with. Are you going to be on the outs all your life with someone you're supposed to be sharing life with? Find someone that you like. That word like is an interesting word too. There are three or four words that relate to marriage. You have caring love, affectionate love, intimate love, and then you have the love of parents and child. But that second one, that affectionate love, is the love of pleasure, the love of liking, the love, the love of, a, of friendship. So what that says is there's something you found in the person that you're married to that you liked. Maybe she is beautiful. Maybe he is handsome. Maybe she is beautiful and he's witty. Maybe she's beautiful and he's intelligent. Maybe she's, she's beautiful and you're, you're athletic. Or maybe she's beautiful and she's intelligent and she's witty and she's athletic and she's all those things you aren't. But you found in her someone you liked. Someone you could find pleasure in. And if it's someone you can find pleasure in, do the things that produced a pleasure. Isn't that simple enough? Again, I found something that said our gratitude will be like. Let me hold your hand as we go downhill. We've shared our strength. We share it still. It's not been easy to make the climb, but the way was eased by your hand and mine. Like the lake. Our lake has had ripples too. Ill health, worries, payments due. With happy pauses along the way, a graduation, a raise, and pay, at the foot of the slope, we will stop and rest. Look back, if you wish, we've been truly blessed. We've been spared the grief of being torn apart by death, or divorce or broken heart. The view ahead is one of the best. 
just a little further than we can rest. We can move more slowly, but together. Still, let me hold your hand as we go downhill. That's companionship. And everyone in this audience who has lost a mate or is in the process of losing a mate will affirm what I'm saying about the value of companionship and how it answers the question of loneliness. Companionship is an irreplaceable attribute in a marriage. Third, and the anchor leg of our lesson is Christ Himself. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 if you will. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> In verse 33, I'm sorry, verse 32, chapter 5, you have this statement. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In verses 22 through 30, he's just talked about how a husband has loved his wife as Christ has loved the church. And how a wife is to respectfully submit herself to her husband as the church is to Christ. Then he talks about how husbands love his wife as he loves himself, nourishes and cherishes himself. And then talks again about how the wife is to respectfully submit herself to her husband. And then comes to verse 32 and said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The very first institution of ordered society that God created was marriage, the home. But when he created the home, though he was answering the problem for man's loneliness, companionship, there was something else God had in mind. It was a mystery until we read it now. When God created that husband and wife relationship, it was to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. The character we have, the companionship we have, is to be a reflection, uh, a reflection of the relationship between Christ and and the church. And so, if husbands fulfill their responsibility and wives fulfill their responsibility, then you have a marriage that mirrors Christ and the church. Notice what he says in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves, your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so that wives be their own husbands in everything. Verse 33. Nevertheless, that each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The kind of submission is a respectful submission. That's not a, a submission out of, out of fear or coercion. And here's the point in that. Did you notice to whom the Holy Spirit addressed Respectful submission. He did not address it to the husband to make sure his wife respectfully submitted. 
you don't find in the instruction given the husband's responsibility to make sure his wife respectfully submits to him. It is not the husband's place in the marriage, if we're going to be like Christ in the church, to tell his wife, you obey me and you submit to me. That's not what he's saying. Furthermore, read again with me. Notice what he says. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present her to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wife as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. To whom did the Holy Spirit address the responsibility of love? He does not tell the wife, you make sure your husband loves you. He tells the husband, your responsibility is to love your wife as, as, as is an adverb of manner. In this manner, you love her in this manner. As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He provided a nourishing, loving, caring relationship. And He did that by sacrificing Himself for her good. The husband loves the wife for her good, not his satisfaction. The husband loves his wife sacrificially for her good, not so that she will bow to every word he says in obedience. The husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. And fellas, I can tell some of us are loving ourselves real well. Look at your belt line. There's not many of us pushing away from the table. We're eating ourselves really good. We're loving ourselves. We're feeding ourselves. We're taking care of ourselves. And he said, just as you care for her, yourself, you care for her. You nourish and cherish her. You put such a high esteem on her that she is a precious vessel that is easily broken but has something you need in life. And you don't make her bitter. Colossians chapter 3 will say. You do that by being willing to sacrifice yourself for her, not her sacrifice herself for you. When we appear before God, He's not going to ask, okay, Ricky, did you make sure Jody submitted to you? Sure did. This is what I told her to do, and she had to do it. No, He's going to say, Ricky, did you love her as Christ loved the church? And he's not going to ask Jody, Jody, did you make sure Ricky loved you as he loves himself? No, he's going to say, Jody, did you respectfully submit to him as Christ does the church? Why in the world do we as the church respectfully submit ourselves to the Lord? Is it because he says, you obey me or else? Or is it because he has demonstrated a sacrificial love for us that says, I have poured my life out for you and when we see how much He's poured His life out for us, what is it for us to then respectfully submit to Him? But too many times, the husband says to the wife, you know, you're not obeying me, and you need to obey me. Well, what I want to ask him is, 
Are you loving her like Christ loved the church? Or are you making her bitter? Are you treating her, are you treating her like that prized, tre- pre- precious vessel, uh, treating her with honor as the weaker vessel? Are you, are you treating her that way? And if you're not, then quit worrying about whether she's obeying you or not because you're not obeying the Lord. You're not submitting yourself to Him. And that's a higher, that's a higher criticism than whether the wife is obeying the husband or not. Because that has eternal consequences to it. And so we find the character of the Lord. If we have character and companionship and Christ in our marriages, then we're going to have the Savior. Notice I emphasize that. We'll have the Savior that's in our relationships. We'll have relationships that are striving to be pure. We'll have relationships that realize that mammon is not the goal because you can't serve two masters. We'll have parents who, because they have these attributes, then therefore teach their children the way of the Lord and teach their children the proper respect for the Lord and respect for others. Too many times we don't have children problems. Too many times we have parent problems. And the parent problems are because the parents don't have the character that God wants us to have. But when we have that kind of character, then the Savior will be in our relationships. One last quote from Ann Landers as I quote, close. A man sent in this story. Recently, after 55 years of marriage, I lost my loving wife. I lost my sweetheart. I lost my gourmet, my gourmet cook, my nurse, my best friend. In the 55 years we married, we were married, I sent her flowers only twice. Now I put flowers on her grave twice a week. I kiss the picture every morning and tell her how much I love her. Before she went away, my morning greeting was, Is the coffee ready? Somebody's going to survive. In most cases. And when that someone survives... We don't want the last thing that we remember saying was, is the coffee ready? In fact, the last thing we want to remember is, I did my best to grow in character like the Lord and to share life with her and to love her as Christ loved the church. Three fundamental foundations for marriage. One last thing. There's a word that's also akin to companionship that is essential to all three. It's called communication. That word communication is an interesting word too. It's a compound word that says making information common. It's not that she said something to me and it went in one ear and out the other, is that we stop to make the information common. It's the sharing of information to make the information common. If you've been in any of my marriage classes, you've heard this illustration before, but it still illustrates. The average amount of time 
that a husband and wife spend speaking a day. 24 hours in a day. 3.5 minutes. And we're going to have companionship. Maybe it's time to unplug everything. Maybe it's time when she talks to mute the TV or turn it off. Maybe it's time when she talks to slide and turn it off. Maybe it's time to unplug, to shut it down. Maybe it's time just to have eye contact and listen to make the information common. God said, here's my word. I'm making the information common. I'm communicating it with you. Here's my word. And in my word are the answers to relationships. When we spend time with a healer, there's no problem too difficult, no pain that hurts too much, but what the healer can heal. And he has made the provision to heal the ultimate wound. And that is separation from our Father. By loving us enough to give himself on a cross, to say, I'll sacrifice it all for you, to make the provision for you, to make the provision for you, to be reconciled to my Father by being forgiven. If we can help you do that, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.